another episode of the Ion Security Podcast. I am your host, Luke McNamara. Joining me today for a discussion around the threat landscape in Latin America and how organizations are facing it, I have Ryan Goss, VP of Latin America in the Caribbean, and Juan Carlos Garcia Caparos, Director of Maining Consulting for Latin America in the Caribbean. Welcome, folks. How are you? Very well. How are you? So maybe we can start off with... Tell me a little bit about your team's function and organization and what you're focused on solving or addressing for customers. Ryan, let's start with you. I'm, uh, like you mentioned, I'm the vice president for Latin America. So in, in charge of all sales and, and operations for the region, you know, I'm focused on really growing the, the company at this point. We have a relatively small footprint in the region. So really focused on building out our channel and infrastructure really going after the top industries where we, we play the best. And I know we'll get into that a little bit later. And just kind of the overall sales and strategy marketing of, of what we do in, in Latin America, which also is very important for the part of Mandy and, and, and services. Hello, I'm Juan Carlos. I'm director for Mandy and Consulting Services in Latin America and Caribbean. And my focus principally is to offer solutions that could be in the consulting, in the implementation, or even in the managed services side to resolve um, all the situations that the customers have today regards cybersecurity. So we have done, I guess, you know, a few of these, and it's kind of been a, a bit of an informal series where we've looked at different regions and the, the threat landscape there and how organizations are, are kind of focused on responding to those threats. And so maybe that's where we can first start this discussion here. Juan Carlos, I'll start with you. Historically, what are the sorts of threats that we've seen face customers in Latin America? I'm sure there's been a lot that are very similar to what we see in different regions, the different types of adversary motivations, cyber espionage, cybercrime, hacktivism. But give us a, a flavor for what that's looked like historically in Latin America. Well, Latin America is not too much different from the rest of the world. Cyber criminals are focused in monitorize their vulnerabilities that they found in the customer's infrastructure. And also, of course, there are other kinds of attacks where they, they want to steal some information in order to use it or to sell it or even for espionage purpose. The other thing that has come in the last year is the kind of criminals that are sponsored by the states, countries that are interested in in be a major, make a major changes in, in other countries. No? It's not just the monetary or the financial purpose, but it's over that. No? So they can be involved in elections or in other political stuff. So the landscape that we can see is, is very wide. And the idea is, in, in our case, is to be in the front line in order first to identify what are the motivations, what are the techniques, and how we can help customers in order to, to avoid that kind of uh, attacks. Are there certain aspects of adversary activity or maybe the nature of how organizations are structured or other sort of aspects of, of kind of the business and the society there where there are particular types of threats that maybe we see more of in, in Latin America than in other places or certain nuances to that threat? Yeah, one of the the realities that we have in Latin America is that the security culture is probably lower than in other countries. Probably, if we compare our security culture, our risk culture is 
less developed that uh, we can see in uh, in the United States or in Europe. That's a, b- a big problem because many of the companies and the people is willing to take some risks and they are not really prepared to confront the, the criminals. I think that is a, a big difference that from the rest of the, the other parts of the world. And the criminals are really wise and they are using that and taking advantage of things like the, the, the pandemic, the COVID, and the people is is weaker than in other times because they are thinking in different things. They are, they are not taking the enough care in order to avoid that. So what we can see today is a big increment of malware, of course, but also direct attacks through phishing that they are converted in, in ransomware and things like that. So that's the thing that we, we see almost every week. We have a, a customer asking for help in order to resolve that, that kind of situations. And the, and the situation here is that customers probably don't, they don't even know how well prepared in order to confront that kind of, that kind of attacks. No, they, they don't know if there is uh, some presence of the, if they are really prepared to respond. And of course, the maturity of their organization probably is not ready to confront this kind of very prepared cyber criminals. I, I think yeah. that's the main thing. Juan Carlos mentioned the COVID. One thing that we're seeing as well, and it's, I think it's kind of around the world, is you know obviously the rapid digital transformation. But in Latin America in particular, because their teams are so limited in terms of resources, you know they've really had to convert to doing just basic IT tasks in a lot of ways to facilitate this transformation going all remote. And it's just taking away from their day to day. You know they, they already have limited cycles to be able to do their their job and and not become just uh, firefighters and putting out fires everywhere. It's gotten even harder now with this. So I've seen a, a greater increase in the need to automate, the need to really assess and really to have the information at their fingertips when they need it. So, Yeah, and, and besides that increment in the attack surface that is product, mainly because it was required many companies to have more people connected with not really following all the best practices in order to be protected because they have to react very fast in order to have a business continuity. If you add that, the the complexity of the cyber criminals, they, they collaborate, they work together in order to be more efficient and more effective in their attacks. Also, there is, a, there is another problem. The lack of skills in cybersecurity in Latin America is another problem. You don't see too many professionals that can be hired by the companies. So the companies are requesting more and more services like the, the ones that we provide in order to resolve in a better way their problems. Yeah, so that's a point I'm curious of hearing more on because I think it's interesting to see in different regions where the skill set comes from. In some places, like the United States, we see a lot that, particularly on the, the cyber threat intel side, for example, that may come from government or the military and so the skill sets that have built up over there in organizations like that or the financial sector, where they do have a lot of resources, then eventually transfer to other sectors and, and regions. Maybe that's different for different skill sets and, and components. But historically, where do you typically see folks coming from? What sectors do folks typically come from that have very strong backgrounds in some of the core cybersecurity capabilities? Yeah, I would say it's it's probably not unlike any 
you know, anything we see even in the U.S., it's mostly from the financial sector or government primarily. You know, there's big industries and, and companies that take, you know, like a Coca-Cola or something like that. They're, they're going to have a, a strong team. And, you know, that's specific industry verticals where we see pockets of strength. And again, we focus primarily on those kind of customers. But where the most sophistication and the biggest budgets are by far is banking, finance, and government. The other area where we can find that kind of skills or professionals, probably, and this is more related to regulatory stuff, require for some companies that are under regulatory requirements is, for example, finance. For sure, they, uh, so we, we can get professionals from that, and also there is some universities are trying to develop that kind of skills, but it still is is limited. So, in one side we have the the finance area, we have the of course the consulting companies that they are developing their own skills, but still I think there is a, a big gap between what is required and what we really have in the market. So with those sorts of threats, which again are not uncommon to what we see in, in the different regions, with the sort of background and expertise, kind of where that sits in different industries across the region, what are the sort of problems that we typically see customers coming to us with? And maybe Ryan, I'll start with you on this. What are they typically looking for when they're approaching us? Well, yeah, and, and that's a great question. I think there's been iterations of, of FireEye, obviously. So it's a very interesting dynamic of where we are right now because we still have the loyal customers from way back, you know, that we have bought the original inline sandbox and have stayed with us through all of our evolution. And we do have some customers that have nearly the entire suite and they've, you know, really taken advantage of, of services. But those are few and far between. So now as we as we go through our transformation and we have an increased portfolio, not only on the solution side, but also within the consulting side, you know, the, the reputation of FireEye in the past is always that we're a very elite and expensive company, both on the, our solutions as well as our, our services. And I think that perception has changed a little bit with the, the move to subscription and and ARR. So I think really the, the intelligence piece is really taking form, in my opinion. You know, our Intel offer being one thing, but really the Helix platform being kind of that source of intelligence and really the differentiator for us. Inevitably, we find ourselves in, I always say, knife fights, you know, with one provider of, you know, if it's an endpoint deal, then we're fighting all the endpoint providers. So we are trying to dif differentiate ourselves from the rest in terms of providing that intel as well. So I think that's taken form and that's the type of solutions that they're looking for. I'll let Juan Carlos talk more about the services, but from my perception on the services, it hasn't necessarily changed in the time that I've been here. The CAs or, you know, the compromise assessments, it really one of our strengths, of course, and, and they really recognize us as kind of a leader within that. So they come to us for that. A lot, we're doing much better now with, for example, the IR retainers, that we're really understanding the value of that and being able to have us on speed dial, if you will. So there's a lot of just the, what back to what uh, Juan Carlos said in terms of with the limited resources that customers have, they, you know, let's just take if, if it's a Swift or something like that, they say, well, we need to make sure that we're okay within this protocol on this, this platform, let's call Mandiant because they're the best. So we're getting kind of a, a lot of those as well. So uh, I'll hand it over to Juan Carlos to talk more about the services. 
the other thing that I think is that the service that is going to fit better a customer, it, it will depend on what is the moment that that is happening. And what I'm trying to say with that, if you already compromise and you are being attacked or you, you have breach, the kind of services that are going to be required are totally reactive. No? And we are calling here services like the incident response services that we have. That is something that we can do it really well. We are probably one of the best in the world doing that. In And, and the approach is get there, bring a SWAT team, understand the environment, and, and try to, to help the customer in order to, to avoid further damage, uh, identify who is the, who is the attacker, and, and be sure that the attacker is going to be out of their systems and their persistency is going to, to be something gone. So that's probably that's the main service that we are recognized in the, in the world. In the other hand, when there is not an attack, but there is a possibility that the, the organization is compromised or not, we, we have a, a certain kind of evaluation that we do in order to review if first, if the, the customer is compromised, if the customer is prepared to respond to that kind of uh, attacks and try to define with them what is going to be their security posture. I think this is more in the, in the proactive side in order to help the customer to define what is the current state, what should be the future state, and what they need to do in order to, to close that gap. And we have other kind of services in order to help the organization to transform or to train or to create security culture in the organization. And also area of delivering or doing managed services, we have many other different services in order to, to manage their defense capabilities of the customer. Not just the monitoring, but also the detection response and even the recovery, you know, in order to cover the whole access, the whole spectrum of requirements that are required regarding cybersecurity. One thing that I think we've seen a lot of this year with, in particular, driven by the spate of ransomware attacks and the nature of, of how those have transformed really in 2020 is a lot of organizations kind of elevating the security discussion up into the C-suite, into the boardroom in ways maybe they hadn't in the past. I'm curious, you know, in, in kind of your description of organizations that are looking for that sort of reactive response and maybe weren't thinking as much about investing in security or that maybe being more constrained to the IT and, and security function rather than the larger discussion within the business and for the organizations that are thinking about this more proactively, have you seen a shift or a change where that conversation around security is being elevated more into the boardroom and how they're approaching it and how they want to think about it in the future? It's getting there. It has a very long way to go. And a lot of the discussions I have with everybody on the team is exactly around that. You know, back to my analogy of the, the knife fight. I mean, especially as we get into other solutions like Intel and, and, and validation, if we're still at that kind of operator level, it's going to be very different. So, you know, I think that's one of the benefits of FireEye, Mandiant, the frontline intel that we have and the messaging that we are continuing to deliver. It really helps us get there. And, you know, a lot of the discussions we have, we don't initially don't get into bits and bytes and speeds and feeds and, you know, all that stuff that eventually you have to get to. But if you start getting there right away, it's, you know, going to be very tough. So as we talk about this transformation stuff and really 
you know, a, a good example, uh, Juan Carlos mentioned the, the regulation. So in Brazil, the equivalent of the GDPR is LGPD, uh, and it's just as rigid. That regulation is driving investment that wasn't there before, and the people that are on the line are the executives. So, so that, that's one kind of clear-cut example of it getting elevated. But again, the unique differentiator that we have, you know, not only on the Mandiant side, but on the Intel side, when we can really provide that insight into the, and not put it in the technical terms, just what is your risk? Are you exposed to risk or not? And can you prove what your risk level is? Can you show the board of directors and your bosses and the executives that the investments that have been made are in fact doing what they should be doing? That's not happening overnight, obviously. We are gaining much more traction along those lines in terms of getting not only to the CISO, but above. But it's definitely a process and it all goes back to the level of maturity as well. And that maturity level of the companies where they think, okay, well, security is just an afterthought. We just have to you have to check the box. Without getting into too many diesel, it, it can even come down from a government. Juan Carlos lives in Mexico. And unfortunately right now, the tendency from you know high above is the austerity plan and do everything as efficient as possible, as cheap as possible. And that obviously impacts security as well. And you're not going to have any level of high level discussion necessarily when, when that's what, that's on the table. So every country is different. Some are much, much more in tune, like a Brazil because of LGPD versus, you know, what's going on in Mexico right now. But that obviously will change in a couple of years and things are fluid. But from our level on a practitioner level, you know, there's definitely much more interest uh, on that executive level and above. We've talked about Intel a couple of times here and sitting on the Intel side, I would be remiss if I didn't ask a further question around that, which is, I think in, in my mind, one of the notable examples that we've historically seen of a set of threat actors doing activity in a particular region of a particular kind that maybe historically you wouldn't expect would be some of the activity we saw from North Korean threat actors targeting financials throughout Latin America. Correct. And again, there's always a, a tendency for organizations, especially with limited resources, focus on the threat actors that are currently hitting my sector, currently active in my region. Yeah. But I think the sort of scenario goes to, to the point of if you're trying to think through potential risk, at least having some awareness of what the other threat actors out there are who are carrying out global campaigns, what their capabilities look like, and where there are those early warning signs of a shift in, in targeting. When we think about how organizations in Latin America are approaching threat intelligence, situations like that, are those sort of wake-up calls to the value of threat intelligence, kind of as an early warning system, or is there still much this focus on IOCs, tactical indicators, and you know using those in sort of the SOC use case context? Yeah, yeah I would say it's still a very tactical way to use it, unfortunately. There are the, the exceptions. We have customers that are very mature, and they've invested not only in one Intel solution, but maybe several. The challenge continues to be, it's still kind of on the tactical side, like how to make that Intel much more actionable in real time with this level of employee that you know doesn't necessarily have all the knowledge that like, like, like Juan Carlos was pointing to. And they're just very focused. They want to see, okay, are, are these, like you said, IOCs or if it's a bank, you know, bins and, and they're just very... Is it binary? Is it there or not? If it's not, then the solution is not valuable to me. I think 
we've come a long way. It's not so cut and dry now, and they, they are understanding the value of, of understanding tendencies from other parts of the world and TTPs and, and all that type of stuff that can really give them an early warning sign of, hey, we need to you know, make some adjustments here because of what's going on. Connecting the dots, that is an ongoing process. I think the more that the other Intel providers continue to enter into the market and they can see the differentiation, um, then you know that's when we become much more interesting. But it's frustrating because we can show beyond a reasonable doubt that we are very good Intel solution, but with very limited budgets and a very limited scope and how they're going to use that Intel, it sometimes becomes difficult. But it's an ongoing, you know, discussion. And you know, I would say every single year, more and more projects. There's more and more. Uh, the RFPs are much more uh, in depth. And the requirements are, are there. So I, I like where we are, but we, it's a huge growth area, I should say, for us. I don't know if you want to add anything, Juan Carlos. Yeah, I, I would say that cyber intelligence for sure is, is one way to have a proactive approach in order to be ready to respond. But th- there is a, a situation that may complex this uh, because many of the organizations, they receive tons of information towns of uh, cyber intelligence. The problem, and uh, Ryan already mentioned, is that it's not actionable. And that is because there is no context in that information. So it's required to have uh, some additional filter in order to create a specific context for the organizations. Otherwise, it's too many information that is it's not easy to take decisions based on that. The other thing is that the collaboration between the different organizations doesn't occur. The banks, they don't speak each other. They don't share information. They're still in their islands of information. And, and that's one of the things that is requ- required to happen, as well as, as the, in the cybersecurity companies, that we should share more information in order to collaborate. Of course, there are business situations that doesn't allow that to happen very easily, but is the only way because the criminals, the cyber criminals, they really collaborate between them. And, and for that reason, they are sometimes even more prepared than than the, the, the good guys in order to respond better. So contextual cyber intelligence is, for, for me, is the, the next step to, to follow. Two areas that come to mind in our discussion here with some of the things that you brought up, and I'm curious what you've seen to be the response level and interest from organizations in Latin America, training and validation, particularly maybe for some organizations that haven't historically invested as much in security. And so maybe there's a lot less security debt when it comes to kind of figuring out what stuff they want to throw out and going through that process of looking at controls, what's working, right? The, the whole validation yep. context. But then also training, right, to address maybe some of those workforce shortages where there is maybe a lack of expertise in certain areas. How are organizations thinking about those things? Yeah, I mean, I I guess starting on the validation point, it's kind of similar to what we talked about with the Intel. If we go all the way back to the Veriden acquisition and, you know, then starting to talk about that and really starting to learn about what a BAS is versus what the di- differentiation in, in, in Veriden, et cetera, and being able to evangelize that. And that's the word. It's a lot of evangelization at this point because, unfortunately, those, those bass players kind of arrive first. And so they set the table, and this is what this looks like. And we just get 
kind of bolted into that. And it takes time. And, and we've been going through that process. We do have, again, going back to the level of maturity, those, those customers that are truly in tune with what a true validation, you know, and, and all the, the use cases that we can provide and, and really just the level of granularity and detail that they can have is really impressive. Now, it goes back sometimes to just checking the box and having a minimum like, hey, do you guys have some sort of a tool to check in the best that providers are using the word, the term validation as well? Like, oh, yeah, we got it. And so it becomes immediately kind of a price exercise. And it's just kind of that process of, of getting them to a point where, OK, they see the difference and now they have to budget for it. And then to your second point, the, the training piece that is an ongoing problem for them because it happens a lot. They have, they've invest all this time in training their people, getting them from, you know, a very low level, but you know, smart, smart people. It's not that when we say maturity level, it's not, not because of any level of intelligence or anything. It's just that the experience that they've had. So then they go and they, they bring them up, they get them ready to be solid contributor. And then, you know, they get a job offer somewhere else and they're gone. And so boom, they're all the way back down to square one. And so, I think that's kind of back to one thing's education and, and the training piece, but the other is having a, a company like FireEye and Mandiant behind them to help them get their program level and the maturity level that Juan Carlos was talking about earlier is, is really important. But the training is, is definitely difficult. And there's also a lot of local companies that offer training. So I wouldn't say that training is necessarily a big part of our portfolio. Where we do have training is when it's part of a bigger deal. And, you know, obviously training specifically on our stuff, unless it's an engagement specifically to, to really lift the maturity level of the whole security program, including the, the employees and their skill set. Yeah, I would like to add that training is okay, but if there is not objective that really matters, it's really with an objective of create cybersecurity culture based on risk. The training is something that it, it won't work because it's going to only to pass a requirement or to pass a, a regulatory requirement. Training has to be focused on creating that cybersecurity culture. And it has many different phases. And one of the phases that many companies forgot at the end is to test that training. If that training, it really make a difference, it really create that culture that they can have uh, simulations of attacks and test how the people is going to react in and test if the plan, the recovery plan is really something that is going to work. So this has to do with cybers, with the enterprise resiliency of the company. So because the question is, is not if you are going to be attacked. The question is when is this is going to happen? And the companies have to be ready to resolve that ready in the controls, ready in the processes, ready in the technology, but even most ready in the way that the people is going to react in order to be recovered from that attack. I think that's the main point of the training, not just just to pass a regulatory requirement or a corporate requirement. That is an excellent point, having that divorce from a larger strategy around risk mitigation and the processes and controls and the expertise and the people component of what an organization has in the way to stand up against cyber threats, I think is very important. 
wrapping up here, I'm curious what things that you would leave the audience with, things to look for as we go into 2021. Ryan, you've mentioned, for example, regulation and how that's you know had an impact or shaped mm-hmm. how organizations are thinking about security. Obviously, COVID-19, as you know, hopefully we come out of that in 2021, knock on wood. There may be aspects of that where, to Juan Carlos's point early on, organizations have had to change ways that they've conducted business, and there may be continued evolutions around that that have security implications and that may drive certain security controls or, or processes. And there may be evolutions of the threat landscape. We may see new threat actors emerge from Latin America or pivot to target Latin America. So I'm curious what your thoughts and predictions are for 2021. Yeah, you mentioned actually a couple of them, and they all, it all kind of ties into what we've been talking about throughout this. And, you know, as it relates to COVID and rapid acceleration of the digital transformation towards the cloud, we've seen it in this COVID period within 2020, and it'll only get you know more and more as we go into 2021 as budgeting has really focused on that transformation. So we'll, we'll see a lot of that. And yeah, I mean, more and more regulations coming online. And I, I'd say just the model, as we continue to talk about lack of resources. So the, the MSSP requirements or need to have strong MSSP partners, uh, not only for us, but for the, the end users and how they buy and, and, and really be able to kind of outsource a lot of that stuff is really important for them. And I think... For us as a company, with our transformation, there's there's a lot of opportunity now in us kind of going down market a little bit and really kind of focusing more on that small to medium business where before it just wasn't viable for us, uh, but now it is. And I think we're going to see a lot more action out of that small to medium business and, of course, continuing on the top of the pyramid as well. So, Juan Carlos? I will add that one thing that we can expect is to see more attack. This is not going to, f- to finish early, to finish very soon. The cyber criminals, they do the, their things with all the time. They can be preparing an attack for days, months, even years, and, and nobody can notice what is happening. They have all the time in the world in order to attack an organization. And, and for sure, the COVID-19 pandemic help the criminals in order to have more time without being noticed. So it is important that the company have the capabilities in order to detect, to respond and recover at the same time, at the same level, at the same level of maturity as Ryan mentioned. And the other thing is security is not a technical matter. It's a business decision matter. The companies need to understand that it's not just a technical thing or it's a matter of be careful about the data or things like that, but it goes beyond that. It can destroy completely a company, can destroy their reputation, it can take an organization out of business very easily. And that's why the security is not the responsibility of the CISO or the, or the guy in IT. It's a responsibility of every single person, every single executive in the organization. And the, the security should be in there and the DNA for sure in order to not just to report, respond in what is required in the organization, but even in, in their own lives. 
So I think that's the way that we need we need to to see cybersecurity in these days. Wise words to end this on. Gentlemen, thank you for your time. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you.